Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, everyone. This is Johnny, and welcome to Invest Like a Boss. This is episode 29, and I'm back here with my co-host, Sam Marks. Hey, Johnny. Greetings from What's Puerto on, Rico. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> Greetings from Pai, Thailand. I'm sure we can, we'll talk a lot about this uh, at the end of the show, mm-hmm. but I'm excited to have on Chris O'Donnell on the show and kind of hear what what his his thoughts were on taking big gambles, trying to predict who's going to win the presidency and, you know, and investing on that. Right, definitely. Well, as we know, he did accurately predict it. He also accurately predicted Brexit and a lot of our boss lounge followers made some money off it so let's see what chris has to say about his predictions how he made it happen and what he is thinking the next big bet for the future is going to be sounds good let's listen to the episode welcome back ladies and gentlemen today we have on the show chris o'donnell the man who successfully called predicted and traded the trump victory last week chris thanks for having you on and and welcome to the show Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm a, I'm a regular listener, and I really like what you and Johnny are doing. So it's uh, it's great to be on the show. I appreciate that, man. And all I have to say is, holy shit! Because just like you predicted Brexit, most of the world is shocked. But according to your article, you're not shocked at all. Yeah. Well, I think the data was there. It was publicly available, and um, you just had to sort of really look into it. And um, and when you did that. You know, as I sort of outlined in the article, there were some compelling uh, reasons and evidence to think that Trump had a very strong chance of victory. And, um, and, and that's what turned out to happen. So just to give the listeners a little bit of background, Chris and I exchanged a few emails prior to the election. And then Chris sent me his article uh, that was predicting the Trump victory. And we're going to talk more about that. But I just thought the article was fantastic because these were all theories that I had kind of had in my head, not making a political statement of any type, but, um, but we all saw Brexit earlier in the year, which kind of shocked the world and, and all the polling was off. So I thought the article was, was fantastic and very insightful. So I shared it in the boss lounge where we have a lot of our, our listeners, uh, chatting about all these things. And a bunch of the listeners made trades. I think maybe it was a day or two building up to the election. And I, I know a few of them made money and, and, uh, shared their, shared their profits on, uh, the group. So you're a little a bit of a small celebrity in the group now. Oh, my, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear some people uh, took advantage of the opportunity and made some money. Yeah, so we're going to get into all that. We're going to get into the trades that Chris made. Uh, but before we go into more details on that, Chris, you want to give us a little background on, you know, where you're at and, you know, what's your profession? Sure. Well, in my, in my past life, I was a uh, mergers and acquisitions lawyer and I was working in um, Australia, England and Russia, which is where I'm based now. Around two years ago, I left the legal profession and then I started my hedge fund, uh, which is called Automatic, in July 2015. I'll give you a really brief rundown on Automatic. It's a uh, British Virgin Islands-based hedge fund, and it specializes uh, trading Forex in two main areas. The first is using automated trading systems to generate risk-managed superior returns, and the second is trading special circumstances such as Brexit and the POTUS election. Cool. Yeah, as part of setting up the company, I sort of I've reviewed over 6,000 automated trading systems, so got a real feel for the criteria for choosing a good automated trading system. 
I mean, uh, happy to sort of give a really brief explanation on an automated trading system if you think that might be useful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Please. Sure. Well, I guess it's to unpack it a little bit. Yeah, you essentially you have software which is used to automate your trading strategy. And then the trading strategy, which is the second part, is made up of three components. So the first component is the entry criteria to open the trade. The second component is the exit criteria to close the trade. And then the third requirement is essentially money management. Uh, to touch on each one briefly, if with, say, an entry criteria to open a trade, you might have three criteria. It could be something as simple as um, price being above a 50-day moving average or the relative strength index being above 50. And then you might have another criteria involving a crossover of a moving average. And when all those three criteria uh, are satisfied, you enter the trade. Then moving on to the exit criteria, you'll typically have a, a stop loss and a take profit. So you might say, on this trade, I'm prepared to risk $1,000. And once the trade enters a negative balance for $1,000, I'll close it. And on the upside, you might say, well, once this trade makes uh, $1,500, I'll close it. Or you might have something different where you say, actually, I'll keep this trade open as long as price remains above the 50-day moving average in the situation where you were holding a, a long position. And then finally, money management, which is absolutely crucial, is simply how much you risk per trade. So to give your listeners a very simple example, say you have $100,000 worth of trading capital, the rule of thumb from the really good traders that um, I've learned from is that you shouldn't risk more than 1% of your capital on a trade. So with $100,000 trading capital, you wouldn't risk more than $1,000. I mean, there are some exceptions where you break that rule, but for the most part, it's a pretty solid rule to uh, live by. Hmm, very interesting. So there seems like there is a lot going on there with you know, with the automated systems in place, how much of that would be a manual process in actually identifying, okay, we want to make this trade, you know, do you have to put in a few data points and then the automated system does the rest? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's once, once you've actually coded the uh, trading strategy, it's fully automated from there on out. So you, you enter your criteria to um, enter the trade and then basically the software will scan the market uh, continuously to see once those criteria are met and then it enters the trade. So there is work in terms of actually, you know, coming up with a strategy, testing the strategy, and then coding the strategy. But once you've done that, then then it's largely fully automated. Well, sorry, not largely, it is fully automated from there. I mean, you can have manual oversight where, you know, you might look at a situation where a system has a trade open and it's doing very nicely. And you might say, okay, well, actually, I'm going to take the profit here. So there can be some manual intervention, but a lot of systems I deal with, are, uh, once you've actually you know, prepared this and coded the system, it's fully automated. The other, the exception of that is the special circumstances trading that I do. That's um, because I'm doing that live. I'm, I'm basically you know, taking a fundamental analysis event like uh, Brexit and then using the Japanese candlesticks to watch what price is doing. And then in that situation, I'm manually entering the trade. But, but the bulk of, of what my company does is automated. So on the automated side, how often is are those trades taking place? Is, is the frequency like multiple times a day or, or just once a week? Or, or how what's the frequency there? It really, it really depends on the system. I mean, there's some systems that might make um, two trades a week. 
there's other systems that I'm using that might make 50. And then if you're using a combination of systems, then, you know, you could be making 200 trades a week or more. I mean, there's, there's some systems that, you know, do a, a large number of trades, you know, it could be more than sort of 300 a week. But I guess it's more when, when, when you're assessing it, it's, it's really, you know, what actually, what's the profit being generated by the system? A system that enters three trades a week that is generating a great return versus a system that enters, you know, 300 trades a week and is down negative 2%. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's the profit in your pocket that matters. Right. And is, is their volume determined a little bit about by your risk tolerance? Like, let's say you wanted, you're extremely risky and, and a little bit looser on the data points and fundamentals. I guess the volume could be significantly higher versus if you're really conservative and looking just for, a, you know, some very select data points to, to have the automated system trigger off of. A system can really be uh, tailored to a person's risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and that's just primarily you just choose the trade size. I mean, with Forex, it's done by one of the metrics is the, of the trade size is standard lots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if the smaller size is point. One, which means if you're using a leverage of 100 to 1, you've probably, what you, I think you're trading about $1,000 or maybe, yeah, I think that's around right. Whereas if you're trading at uh, 1.0 standard lots, you're trading $100,000 per trade. So there's lots of scope. You know, you might have somebody who's looking at a system going, well, actually, I'm prepared to risk a larger amount of capital. And if that's the case, you simply increase the trade size uh, to, to provide for that greater risk tolerance. Gotcha. And you mentioned you guys are incorporated in, in BVI. I'm actually heading there in two days. I'm trying to figure out how to get there from Dominican Republic because they used to have a ferry that goes there, but now that ferry doesn't operate. So I got to take these little puddle jumper planes to, it looks like to Puerto Rico and then from Puerto Rico to BVI. But have you ever been down there or you just incorporated the company there? I've just incorporated the company there. I mean, I, in my, when I was working as an MA lawyer, a lot of the Russian deals, um, would use a BBI corporate structures, and that's how I sort of got familiar with them and to understand the, the tax advantages and the flexibilities of the structure. So, um, so that's why I primarily chose that jurisdiction. But I've never been. I'd like to go and check it out. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll send some photos if I see anything interesting while I'm down there. Maybe you're a P.O. box or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah, have a lot of P.O. boxes there, and I hear a lot of golf courses too. Yeah, it should be beautiful. I, I mean, BVI is a, not to get off topic, but I think everywhere in the world I've been, it's kind of a, a go-to um, company formation for, for international, you know, for international business, offshore business. It's popular in America. It's popular in Hong Kong. So, um, but uh, yeah, from what I understand, there's not too many people living there, just a bunch of PO boxes. So we'll, we'll see. We'll do a little intel while I'm down there. Uh, so the, anyways, it, the side of the business that obviously a lot of the listeners are more interested in because of recent events is the, is the special circumstances business. So the frequency there is a lot lower. I know you uh, you actively put this into play for Brexit and of course this new election. Going back to Brexit, uh, you know, tell us, take us through that a little bit. I guess you've always got to try and take a position as to what what you think the vote's going to be. And um, so I just sort of I started to research Brexit. I mean, I'd lived in England for for about two and a half years, really liked it, and so I had a little bit of local knowledge from you know meeting meet, meeting the people there and understanding um, how they operate. So I sort of sat down and started investigating it. And one thing, when I was thinking about it all, I mean, England being a member of the EU, they just give up so much control over major decisions that impact their country. And I guess somebody, you know, with your mindset 
Sam is an entrepreneur and I'm trying to become more entrepreneurial. I mean, the idea of voluntarily giving up control just always seems like a really crappy idea to me. And, um, and that's where England were really at as being a member of the EU. I mean, and when I was sort of considering all the issues involved, I mean, there were issues regarding immigration, given the migration crisis um, that's been happening lately in Europe. And so I think that was a really big league uh, reason to exit the EU because the EU really dictates to England what sort of um, uh, they can do regarding immigration and who comes in, things like that. Then the other thing um, that really struck me and was just the enormous waste of uh, taxpayer dollars that the EU um, is involved in. I mean, to give you one example that really, this to me was one of the things that I just thought if they can't even get something this simple right, they've got no hope of managing the EU. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but the EU, they've got two buildings they, they use for parliamentary meetings. One's based in Brussels and the other's based in Strasbourg. So once a month for three days, they transfer all the documents from the Brussels building to the Strasbourg building and all the EU representatives stay in expensive hotels in Strasbourg. Now, there's absolutely no benefit to having two buildings for meetings when only one is needed. And that, that exercise costs the EU approximately 300 million British pounds a year wow. for absolutely no upside gain whatsoever. And that point relieved me. I thought if they can't even get that right, then their, their hope of actually being able to manage a collection of countries in a in an effective manner is just, it's highly unlikely. There was a really good documentary, and I recommend to all your listeners to have a look at it who, who maybe aren't well informed about how the EU works. It was called Brexit the Movie, and that went into detail about all the waste and the problems with the EU. Now, it was clearly biased towards the uh, Leave side, but it did deal with a lot of factual matters, and I just couldn't imagine anyone sitting down and watching that movie at the end of it, thinking it was a good idea to remain part of the EU. And I guess there are a couple of other reasons just to touch on them very quickly, was basically there's no ability for England to fix the EU. And what I mean by that is that England's representatives at the EU, they don't have any power to introduce legislation and they don't have any power to propose amendments to existing legislation. It's all done by a bureaucratic body that's unelected. So a lot of people are coming out during Brexit saying, oh, well, why don't we stay there and fix it? Well, if you actually looked at how the structure worked, they just had no capacity to do it. And to stay in that situation where you're powerless to actually fix it, I just thought was insane. And then I guess the last reason to kind of touch on was the media and, and the uh, Remain campaign, they were very condescending to um, people that thought that there was potential upside to leaving the EU. And I think that really got people's backs up. It was like, well, you know, there are good reasons. And, and there were all these sort of dog whistles like, oh, you want to leave because you're racist. And it was like, well, no, there's, you know, you, there could be some, there were a lot of legitimate reasons that had nothing to do with immigration or, or racist positions as to why you'd want to leave. And I think that negative tone from the uh, Remain camp really hurt their cause. And I think you saw the same thing with the recent US election where, you know, if you, if you were a Trump supporter, you're automatically labelled, you know, nasty terms and xenophobic and racist and isolationist. And, and there was, I don't know, just didn't sense any real effort to, um, you know, engage on the substantive issues. And so when I, when I considered all that and then and the polls were pretty close, I thought there's a real chance here for the, for the English people to vote to, uh, to leave. And, and that's what turned out happening. 
Yeah, don't you think for all those reasons that you just mentioned in, you know, in the US election and also Brexit that that just also creates skews in the in the in the polls because there's so much hidden vote, right? If you know you're going to get labeled a racist and a bigot, then someone comes and polls you, you're just not going to say that you're either going to say you're not voting or you're going to or potentially there's a a percentage of the people that are just going to lie about who they're they're voting for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Scott Adams, the the creator of Dilbert, who's been blogging a lot about this, he he referred to them as the shy Trump supporters. And he believed that there was a significant number of them that, you know, due to fear of uh, maybe, you know, having uh, career limiting moves in employment or, you know, just receiving scorn from other people that, yeah, when they're asked that either, you know, that they wouldn't actually disclose what their actual position was. So, yeah, I think you're spot on there. So going back to Brexit, did you, you know, did you make trades through your special circumstances trading platform? With Brexit, that one was a much more of a learning experience for me. I'd spoken to a lot of traders um, who I deal with and they're, they're, for the most part, their position was you should completely sit out Brexit because there was going to be too much volatility in the market. Right. And with big price swings, you could easily get stopped out of the market. So with, with Brexit, I did make some small trades, but nothing significant. And so for me, it was just a really good insight as to how the market would react for the POTUS election. So like, I guess if you were to look at a one-hour price graph for the British pound and the Japanese yen currency pair, you basically see a massive price drop followed by a short-lived minor recovery. So kind of imagine a V-shape, um, which occurred during the vote counting for Brexit. Now, that V-shaped price graph essentially repeated itself for the US dollar Japanese yen currency pair during the vote counting for POTUS, with the difference being that the USD recovery was not short-lived, but it's continuing, whereas with the pound-yen currency pair, the pound recovery was short-lived. But uh, it really did, uh, gave me great insight as to how to trade the POTUS election. Yeah, b- being an unsavvy investor as myself, when, when Brexit happened, uh, I think the day after the Dow and the S&P may have dropped, I, I can't say off the top of my head, but it was somewhere between 5 and 10, 10%. So I tried to put money into my Wealthfront account that day, but it takes, if you put money into Wealthfront, it usually takes three you know, three to four business days to settle. So by the time it settled, the markets had already rebounded back basically to their highs. So I'm working on a way to get money into the market a little bit quicker in those circumstances. But it also goes to show you that it's just really hard to time those type of things. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really good point having you've been prepared with money within live markets. And uh, and you really have to be, I mean, like for instance, with the post-election, I didn't sleep. I was watching the price all night trying to... um trying to make sure that I, I could time it as best I could. And so you really have to, I guess, you know, time it correctly and also then actually be set up to trade it properly with uh, money in a live account. So immediately following Brexit, the markets rebound, the, the, the British pound kind of sinks, and then the media and the international eyeballs turn their focus on the U.S. election, which was you know, just last week. How long did, were you actually paying attention to this and trying to, to make sense out of what the outcome might be? Pretty much shortly after Trump's announcement in mid-June 2015, when he announced, um, it really sparked my interest. And with the, with the Brexit vote falling the way it did, I just thought, you know, people are, are tired of the status quo. They're, they're looking for change. And um, so when Trump announced, I, I had a look at the, the field of uh, the other candidates running for the GOP nomination. And I just thought he had a really good shot to win the nomination 
And then after his uh, performances in the debates, that sort of uh, made me more confident he'd win the nomination. And I was, and I was even more confident that actually if he could win the nomination, he had a real shot at beating Hillary. And so, you know, I made a few bets with friends um, that I thought that uh, uh, Trump would get up and win. And, um, and so then I you know, started looking into it further. And but then I guess I made my public um, announcement. I think it was um, around uh, 18th of November. I went on Facebook and I said he's going to win it. And then it, the rest is sort of uh, detailed in the article. Yeah. So, th- so you know, they found in, in the WikiLeaks emails that Hillary always wanted to face Trump. She didn't want it. She was nervous most about Bush and a couple of the other ones, but she always thought her best chances were Trump. So interesting. I mean, we, we can't see the uh, what would have happened if she had gone against Bush or or Cruz or something. It would have been very interesting um, to see what you know what the result would have been. But going into you know your article that you published, which was shared in in Facebook, can you take us a little through that? You know where you got the research and uh, and the statistics that kind of grounded and cemented your your view and, and prediction of the election? Yeah, absolutely. I made the prediction Trump would win just primarily on the basis I just realized that you know, immigration was going to be a big issue and Trump made that such a centerpiece of his campaign. And then secondly, the, the situation with Obamacare with his, uh, with his uh, unfortunate broken promises about people being able to retain their health care and retain their doctor. And I just had known from my own, from researching all that, I knew that a lot of Americans have been hurt by that. And in Australia, where I'm from, typically when, you know, the, the leader breaks such a clear promise, they, they typically lose the next election. So I thought those two things were really going to be hard uh, for Hillary to get over. And then also just statistically, once uh, in America, as you, as you know better than me, Sam, once a, once a party's had two terms, it's kind of hard for them to get a third term. So I thought those three things were pretty compelling reasons as to why Trump had a real shot here. So I started investigating it further. I suspected the polls were wrong, and primarily on the basis of Trump's rally turnouts and, and my mistrust of the pollsters. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the, I guess the issue was I couldn't quite put my finger on why they were wrong and, and what was being done to manipulate them. So where I really have to give a lot of credit to is a guy called Bill Mitchell. He's on Twitter and he also has this show called uh, YourVoice.com. Uh, it's, a, it's a radio show. Okay. And he, he basically went into the polling data and he had a real strong look at it. And he realized that all the polls that have the raw data and then they would rewrite the raw data to be Democrats plus eight. So you had a D plus eight bias in all the polls. And in some cases, that D plus eight bias was stronger that have it at D plus 11. So I was looking at that thinking, well, you know, why are they manipulating the raw data? Why not just use the raw data? And I guess there are some arguments as to why you do manipulate raw data. I mean, you could have a sample that, you, that it's just off. But I thought, well, what's, what's their basis for having a D plus eight bias? And the, the bias seemed to be that they were sort of basing that on Obama's turnout in 2008, mm-hmm. which to me was just nuts. I mean, the, the turnout to Obama's rallies, the, the momentum he had, Hillary just didn't have it. And Mitchell uh, was of the view that based on the primaries turnout, that the actual, if there was any reweighting done at all, it should be Republicans plus one. So essentially, all the polls were giving Hillary an artificial nine-point lead. And that was before um, the reopening of the FBI and the investigation and, and some of the latest rounds of WikiLeaks, things like spirit cooking and all that sort of business. And so after that, I just thought, well, you know, here, here's, um, 
if the polls were to be actually reweighted correctly, Trump would be in front. He'd be winning. And then I guess the other thing mentioned in my article um, was there's a guy called uh, Professor Helmut Northpoth, if I, I probably butchered the pronunciation of his surname there. Sorry, Professor. And he, um, he developed the primary model, which is a statistical forecast model that relies on presidential primaries and the election cycle to predict the POTUS race. Mm-hmm. And um, his model's been exceptionally accurate um, from 1912 to 2012. Oh, actually, now from 1912 to 2016, his primary model has picked the winner every time except once in 1960. And so with those, with my, with the reasons I outlined earlier as to why I thought he had a real shot, then this confirmation from the, from uh, Bill Mitchell with his um, disclosure of uh, the bias of the polls and then also Professor Helmut's uh, exceptionally accurate model, it gave me a real strong case to think that Trump had a, had a great chance here. So when we talk about the actual bias in the polls, one of the assumptions that I had was maybe it's just uh, too easy of an assumption, but you know most of the media in the U.S. is liberal or, Demo- or, or Democrat uh, bias. And so I was thinking, okay, so they're saying, you know, if CNN comes out with a poll and says it's Hillary plus eight, in the major- either A, they, they want the polls to look like it's Hillary plus eight, or it's just they're, whoever they're sampling. And a lot of times these samples, I was astounded when I saw that the samples in a lot of these polls are like 140 people. I'm like, how can you come up with, you know, a national uh, poll average based off 140 people? You know, I would think, you know, just out of the top of my head, I would think you would need, you know, 50,000 people plus from, you know, a, a large geographic range. So I was always just thinking that they were just, you know, skewing the poll results to favor whatever candidate they, you know, they seem to be pushing. But I was talking to someone and they had a good point that said, well, that would be a bad strategic move because if they're showing, you know, Hillary plus eight, Hillary plus 10, it's just going to discourage those people that are not, you know, 100% bullish, 100% behind Hillary to even turn out and vote and stand in, you know, a two hour line. If, if they think that she's going to win by, a fair margin, you know, why get up at, at 6.30 in the morning and, and go to the library to, to vote? And I thought that was a pretty good point that, you know, if they were really trying to, to skew the results, they should probably try to, to skew it to be actually closer to try to, because I think in a, a lot of, in this election, a lot of the, uh, what ended up making the difference was just turnout where, you know, Trump, the Trump supporters really, really turned out. I think also like in similar to Brexit. And like you said, Hillary just didn't have the turnout of uh, of the Democratic voters like Obama did, where he was able to rally and get so many people to the polls. Yeah. I mean, I I think your friend's point does definitely have some, some merit. I mean, I, I sort of looked at it differently. I thought they, I agree with you that there's a strong uh, liberal bias in the mainstream media in, in the West generally, whether it be America, Australia or England. And um, I thought the the way they um, skewed the polls with their with their biased reweighting was to try and demoralise the Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I saw it from that angle. I thought they were trying to present the case that it's so clear that Hillary's going to win. Don't even bother to turn up and vote. And yeah. um, and I think it, I think it definitely backfired on them um, because I think you know Trump supporters they just had so much more enthusiasm and, and motivation to get out and vote. And it, and it probably backfired on them in the sense that maybe. Some of the Hillary supporters also thought, well, she's got this covered. You know, it's, it's raining. I'm not going to go out and vote. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it hurt him the way they went about it. According to, to your research, do you think that Trump still would have won 
without the email investigation being reopened, you know, four days pr- or five days, what, what is it, one week maybe prior to the election? Yeah, I do. I, I'm not sure if the win would have been as big because the, the re-weighting of the polls that I talked about, the D plus eight, that had been going on way before um, the uh, email server investigation was reopened. So I, like, even if that hadn't happened, I still would have been confident Trump would have won. Good stuff. Okay, so let's talk about some money, Chris. You made some trades on this election. You were successful. A lot of people in our, a lot of our listeners in the Facebook group made some trades based on your predictions. So, what trades did you make, and you know, how did you, how did you formulate them? The first step was to, I guess, uh, have a guess about if Trump won, what would happen in the markets. And for the listeners, we'll share this article, but there's a section in it at the bottom called Part Two: Profiting from Trump's POTUS Victory, and this is where he talks about all the trades. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Well, I sort of predicted that with Trump winning, that you'd see a temporarily temporary flow of money into safe haven currencies such as the yen, the Swiss franc, and the euro. And I also predicted that the Mexican peso would fall hard, the Canadian dollar would fall, and the S and P 500 would drop as well. So, based on those predictions, I I uh, sold the U.S. yen currency pair, sold the U.S. Swiss currency pair, purchased the euro U.S. currency pair purchased the USD Canadian currency pair. I purchased the uh, put options, futures put options over the Mexican peso with a strike of 0.0515. And I purchased the put options over the SPY with a strike of 200. To give you guys a summary, I think overall on those trades, um, the aggregate return was about 2.5x for the day. So some of those trades had a 5x return other trades had a much smaller return. It's like 0.5x. I do want to highlight to your listeners, though, that the what the trade there was only one trade I lost money on, and that was the SPY put options. What's what's the SPY? Is that the the S and P? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry, yeah, that's the that's the stock code for the S and P. Uh, and the reason I lost money on that is um, the market trading the SPY was not open during the count, and so. Whilst all the other markets reacted uh, the way I predicted, that market couldn't because it was closed. And by the time the market reopened, um, there was a lot of calm in the markets. And primarily, I put that down to uh, President-elect Trump's speech, uh, victory speech, where it was a very scripted speech and it really did settle the market. And that's why um, when, when the market did open for the SPY and the other American stocks, you didn't see the big crashes. And you also saw the US dollar rally against all the positions where it actually fallen. So um, so he deserves credit, or at least his speechwriter does, for, for that speech, because it really did calm uh, the financial markets around the world. Yeah, I don't know anybody that was predicting a market rally after, you know, if, if Trump was the victor. Um, and, I, you know, who would have known what would have happened if, if Hillary became president, except we know healthcare stocks would have continued to get whacked. But we've had a surge in, you know, at least the Dow, I guess the S&P is almost flat since the election. But when did you put your trades in? Did you put those in you know, like the night before or did you get them in, you know, a few days before? I, I, I staged it over two time periods. I did some trades. I think it was on the Thursday or the Friday, the weekend before the election. And then I placed um, trades. I think it was as the votes were coming in, I was watching the New York Times website, which had a live map recording the votes in the different in the different states of America. And so I was, as that vote was coming in, 
Um, I was I was entering trades live as the vote was being counted on on the night of the election. Oh, that's cool. So that so as as votes were coming in, the margins and everything of those trades were were going up or down pretty pretty significantly with what people thought what the outcome was going to be. Exactly. I think I mean because uh, of all the all the media hype about Trump having no chance and all that, the market just had not priced in the possibility that Trump could win. So there were some really big moves in the market. And like I said, some of the some of the trades that I entered did get a five extra turn on the amount that was risked. So it was, it was an exciting period, actually, because um, the big thing that was moving the market from what I could tell originally was the, the Florida vote count. And that really did toggle back and forth between uh, Trump and Hillary. And, um, and once, once actually that looked more and more like winning for Trump, I, I scaled into the positions heavier. Um, I opened more trades. Um, because by that stage too, you know, I had some profitable trades already open, so I was prepared to risk the profit instead of and no longer be risking the starting capital and add some positions. And then at some point, I knew from the Brexit experience that actually the market would come and the USD would stop falling and there'd be a recovery. Like you, I had no idea how strong that recovery would be, but I also knew that I would have to get out um, before too long. So I was probably in most of the trades I was in for maybe two hours, maybe three hours. Mm. And then once I was saw the USD recovery and for that, if you have some hardcore traders there, um, I was using the Japanese candlesticks to watch how price was moving and what the market was doing. Once I saw the candlesticks uh, reverse and show a USD recovery, I closed the positions and got out. Very interesting. So I was at a uh, I was at a gathering for this, which is called a gathering for, for the election. And the New York Times was there. And before the, I was talking to one of the camera guys having a beer. And before the election had even started, before the vote started coming in, he came over to me and goes, hey, we're taking off. The New York Times is predicting a Trump victory, which was crazy, right? Because at that point, all the liberal media were saying, you know, Hillary's got this thing locked down. And here's like the most liberal media that's spreading word through their organization that Trump's going to win before any of the votes were counted. So it, it led me to believe that somebody had some some real information, or maybe that meant that they had polls that they weren't publishing that clearly showed that that Trump was going to win. But I was like, I was blown away. I thought I was like, I thought this guy had, was given bad information or was just saying something to you know to make a prediction. But I mean, they packed up their bags, took off, and you know the the rest obviously is history. And that's that's insane. I'm going to have to give you my phone number so you can give me a call when you hear something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I didn't know what to make of it. But now I look back, I'm like, wow, they, they really had inside information. It makes you wonder if that's true. You know, where do they get their information from and, and how and how can they predict it or how to, you know, I have, I have no idea. I'm still trying to make sense well, of it, but well, it's really think, interesting. Yeah. And I think it was interesting. But I think as simple as uh, Sam, that if, if they actually just looked at the raw data of their polling and they, they don't publish that as part of the poll, they always do the reweighting of it. So anyone who just said, okay, well, what's the raw data show? It was showing a Trump victory. And, um, and it was and primarily is them manipulating with the reweighting of the polls. So they had all the data there. It wasn't so much anything secret. It was just actually if you just took off the reweighting, you could see that Trump was going to win. And maybe they had their own agenda for pushing a Hillary victory. I mean, even on the New York Times website that was actually doing all the counting reporting, like they, they had different uh, gauges. And one, like even at the start, it was showing, you know, Hillary you know, 60% plus chance of winning. So, so whilst they might have internally held that view, uh, that they weren't, they weren't putting that on their website, that's for sure. Yeah, so that just lends me to, to think, you know, if they actually have information that says 
if they know internally that Trump's going to win and they're publishing data on their website that he's going to lose, I mean, is that legal? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know. But I just don't think that people should be able if they know definitely that that is biased and not even biased. I mean, it's, if they had data that says or they knew that that he was going to win and they're presenting that case publicly that that's not the case. I don't I don't know if that's fair journalism or if there's if there's an issue there, but it doesn't seem right. But but everyone's got their own agendas. So no, I think that I think they're all right to do it if there's proper disclosure. I think if if they if more of the public was aware how they reweighted the polls. I mean there there are sometimes legitimate reasons why you would reweight a poll. And if they actually were to sort of explain the the methodology behind it and why they've done it yeah. and also provide the raw data, then I think that's fine. But if you but I think for the most part, like papers like the New York Times and other pollsters out there, they didn't properly disclose uh, the degree of reweighting and their and their um, and their reasons for doing it. And I think if they had of, then you know, if you, if you thought that a, a D plus eight reweighting was a sensible reweighting, and you put yeah. out your reasons, then I'd have no problem with them doing what they were doing. But they they never actually went into that detail to explain to voters. So I think from that perspective, it was poor form. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's just like the job, the job and employment reports that the U.S. comes out with. I mean, there's just so many ways to manipulate those numbers. You know, if if anyone really thinks that U.S. unemployment's at four point nine percent, and it's just total manipulation of numbers, right? But there's so many ways you can skew it and, and play play the card to to what your agenda is. So people just got to be able to look through it. And I guess you know that's no matter what side you're on politically. I mean, it is good to see like with Brexit and this election. Uh, I know it's hard for people on the other side of the fence, but it is good to see you know democracy work the way that it's supposed to work. You know, of course the votes can go either way, but it's good to see that you know it's really not a rigged system as you know at least Trump was was playing it to be and. A lot of people I know in, in England that were voting to leave were, were concerned about. So good on that front. I wanted to ask you about one of your trades. So everyone is clear. When you say you bought the USD uh, Japanese yen currency pair, you're just that's just a like a Forex trade, right? You're you're betting on the US dollar to appreciate over the Japanese yen. Oh, exactly. But with with a slight amendment actually I was I was betting for the US dollar to initially fall during the vote count. Okay. So I was I was I was shorting that currency pair. So thinking that the U.S. would depreciate against the yen, which is exactly what happened, and then uh, got out before the recovery started, and, uh, and the recovery's been actually uh, really, really strong. I mean, in retrospect, I should have probably traded the recovery, but um, but I sort of made a nice profit from from trading the the drop, and was uh, you know was wasn't quite clear about how strong that recovery would be, so I sort of sat that part out. And what did you do that with or without leverage? With leverage, I was trading an account that had um. 500 to one leverage and uh, I didn't I didn't sort of leverage is definitely a two-edged sword I mean it can, you can definitely block an account if you if you're too aggressive with it but yeah. it, but it did, it did allow me to to enter and open more positions um, because it required less margin to open a position with that leverage of 500 to one a, a big problem a lot of people experienced is that um, a lot of brokers um, increased the margin requirements uh, 400 percent to make mm-hmm. trades during that period. So just to give you an example of that, normally you can open a trade of $100,000, say trading $100,000 of uh, the euro USD currency pair with $1,000 if you have leverage of 100 to 1. And suddenly come the um, election period, brokers out there jack that up. So it was, instead of needing 1,000, you now need 4,000. 
And um, in addition, there were certain brokers that actually wouldn't let you trade the uh, USD Mexican currency pair. So um, there are some sort of things like that that you kind of had to think through ahead of time to make sure you were set up to properly take advantage. And when you made these trades, was, was there was there any automated systems in place or were you just watching things and, and pushing a pushing a trigger at a certain time when you were comfortable making making getting in or getting out of that trade? It was a combination. I mean, um, manually, I was, I was watching the, the price action on a screen just to see how that was going. And I had another screen on with the with the uh, New York Times election count. And then I'd also put in some pending orders where um, once, uh, I mean, once a trade got up a certain amount of profit, I would automatically open another trade. So say a trade got up, say, just for sake of example, say it got up $2,000, that might be a time when you have a pending order that automatically opens another trade. So there was some degree of automation, but I'd say in terms of a split, it was probably 80% manual, 20% automated. Awesome. So, Chris, that takes us into you know the future. Is there any big events, any special circumstances that are on the horizon that you're excited about trying to put a prediction to and, and make a profit from? Yeah, yeah. There's a massive special circumstance event coming up. I'm really pumped up about it. Um, it's the Italian referendum on the 4th of December. The outcome of that election, sorry, that referendum will be huge. Um, do you know much about the, have you read anything about that, Sam? I've not even heard of it. Okay. Well, basically, they're having a referendum in Italy uh, regarding how they approve legislation. Uh, presently, both the House and the Senate in Italy have to approve legislation. And um, if the December referendum's passed, it would uh, significantly reduce the Senate's power to make it easier for the House to pass the legislation. And um, the kicker here is that the Italian Prime Minister has said he would resign if the referendum's not approved. So he's kind of uh, tacked in his own track record to the referendum. And um, I think if the referendum fails, uh, you'd likely see the euro fall hard, probably harder than the pound during Brexit. Wow. And you'd see me move in the, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great opportunity. Um, I mean, putting aside whether or not it's good or bad, I haven't made that assessment from a political standpoint, but just from a trading viewpoint, if it fails, that the, the euro will, will likely fall hard and there'll be some great opportunities to, um, you to know, tra- short- to travel to Europe. <laughs> yeah, to travel to yeah to travel to Europe and uh, and to make some some nice trading profits there, and I think I was talking to a trader today. I sort of was preparing for the interview with you, and um, his name's um Adrian Elef, and he, he's a really experienced trader. And I was asking him what he thought would happen with the referendum, and he said, you know what, even if it if it fails, you'll definitely see a drop in the euro. But he said even if it passes. His view was you might see a short spike in the euro, but it would generally just keep tracking on down. So um, so it could be a really, really interesting opportunity. I'm going to try and do a lot more research. I'm trying to track down some uh, Italian uh, Forex traders to have a chat to and try and uh, deep dive into the polls over there. It's a bit harder because um, obviously everything's in Italian, whereas with the American election, I could read everything uh, in English. But um, yeah. I'll definitely uh, send you some uh, some. Uh, some thoughts ahead of that referendum for sure. So just to be clear, this isn't the this isn't a referendum like like the Scottish one or or the the British one where they're actually voting to leave the EU, right? Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Um, it's primarily just to reform how their government is managed. But I think it is in in the sense that if if the referendum passes, they're not voting to leave the EU. But 
I think the, the current Prime Minister, from what I understand, is very pro-EU. Mm-hmm. And I think if the referendum fails, it'd be seen as a further sign that, um, that the EU is, is, in, is in bigger trouble than what people thought. And, um, and on the same day as, the, as that referendum, you also got the Austrian elections. And, you know, depending upon whether the pro-EU or the anti-EU guy gets in, I mean, that could uh, throw fuel on the fire. I don't think the outcome of that election is uh, much less important than the Italian referendum, but it'll definitely play a part in it. Very interesting. Great insight. Well, Chris, it's been a lot of fun. We had a lot of uh, a lot of pleasure of reading your article. You know, and I know a lot of the, the Trump supporters just enjoyed it, even from a non-trading trading standpoint. And some of the Hillary supporters hopefully made some profits uh, to, to offset their losses. Uh, but it's great. And, you know, for all the stuff that you're, you're coming out with in the future, please keep us posted. It's a lot of fun just to make these type of predictions, even if you're not trading them. Uh, so we'll definitely keep a loop into you and uh, you keep your material shared with us. Please join us in the Boss Lounge. I know a lot of people probably shout you a, a thank you or two for the profits that they made off the, the trades in, in this most recent election. So thanks again for coming on the show, man. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, Sam, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure to be on. Uh, like I said earlier, I love what you and uh, Johnny are doing and a big fan of the show. So it's, it's great to be on. And so, yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me on. You betcha. Thanks, buddy. Well, that was a lot of fun with Chris O'Donnell, man. That's uh, really interesting stuff he's got going on. I, I love these these gambles. You know, episode three with with Brian Jimerson and we're sitting there drinking whiskey, taking gambles. And I mean, this was a, a lot of, a lot of really smart stuff went into this and it obviously worked out and worked out for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. I, I think my biggest you know question in life then would be if he didn't, you know, predict the, the, the gamble, I guess, if, if Hillary had won, would we sort of have him on the show? And, and that's what would be no, because then, you know, it could, everything that he said would have been kind of opposite, even though, if everything he has said was accurate and it just kind of went the, the other way, he mm-hmm. would have lost the money in the in the investment and also what he had predicted would have been wrong. So it's one of those things where we have to kind of ask ourselves, is it, you know, is it 2020 vision in hindsight or are these kind of accurate predictors of what can actually happen? Yeah. Well, I love big, bold predictions. And, um, you know, when you read through the article, as I'm sure a lot of people have, you know, it makes sense. And. I think those were all things that we were thinking going into the election, you know, depending on whether you're what, which side of the political party you were on, you may have been supporting that article or, uh, or hoping it was wrong, but it was, you know, it all made sense going into the election. It's kind of like Brexit. It was like everyone that I knew that was in Britain was saying, everyone I know is voting to, to leave, but yet the polls were saying, leave was winning dominantly right it was kind of the same thing that was happening in the u.s yeah i don't believe in polls at all anymore mm-hmm. I and mean, especially you know when you brought up the point that some sample sizes are like 40 people <laughs> right if, if you think about yeah and if you think about the 40 people who actually take the time to answer a poll you know these aren't going to be the like accurate numbers yeah for sure so realty shares just came out with an article uh, that i read today that was basically their prediction on what's going to happen with real estate now that Trump's president. It was really interesting, very detailed, a few things over my head, but it basically came down to, it was kind of like a wash, right? It was saying that regulation is going to come down, which is going to allow more credit to flow, more lo- loans to be issued. Uh, and then markets and, and spending, there's going to be a lot of investment into infrastructure, which may raise GDP and incomes, 
but it could also raise inflation uh, and interest rates, which could ultimately hurt you know people that need to get mortgages and loans. So they're kind of saying it's there's there's push and pull factors on both sides, but. Uh, you know, of course, they're optimistic for the future, and uh, you know that's their business. But interesting perspective there, also. I think it's good to, to read both sides of it, and then decide for ourselves if, if that's something we want to invest in. I think at the end of the day, I, I honestly think that it's even like I, I think everything everything has two sides, right? It can, and nobody can predict the future. So I actually do like listening, you know, to interviews like this because it is exciting and i know that there's a lot of people out there that are winning big on these gambles i don't think my personality type even though i like turning up the risk on certain things i think for me personally i don't like family on the future but I, mm-hmm. i'm sure a lot of people listening to this are like yes give me more of this yeah i'm not a gambling man either i went to a casino the other day and lost seven straight hands of blackjack and went home and basically cried in my bed but uh, but this type of stuff is just more interesting to see how people do make money off of it using, you know, using research and, and, uh, analytics and s- statistics and everything else to try to come up with something that makes sense and, and has sometimes in many cases exponential returns. Yeah. Cause you know, you're right on that where it's not like he's just blindly guessing saying, Oh, I think this is going to happen. You know, he really is digging deep. And obviously if you guys read the article and we'll link to that in the show notes, you know, he knows a lot more about this than not only the average person, but even a lot of the experts out there who only look at one side or they have a vetted interest in either Hillary running or either Trump winning. I think he was looking at it from a financial point of view, thinking, let's let's see who I can make the most money from. Yeah. So that was good stuff. What are you up to, Johnny? Where are you? I'm actually in Pi right now. So if my mic doesn't sound as crisp as it normally does, it's because I'm on my iPhone 7 headset. It's a rooster <laughs> there, in the background. And there was a rooster. <laughs> yeah. That's Pi. So, that's Pi for you. Yeah. So if you guys don't know where Pi is, it's this little mountain town, three and a half hours north of Chiang Mai, Thailand. Uh, I rented a big motorcycle for the weekend and drove you know, up these, these windy canyon roads, which is beautiful. And I'm staying in this little hippie village actually called the Pi Circus School. Oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> sound, I just, loved it. That, that just sounds like a stinky, sweaty, hippie, hippie paradise. It definitely is. But sometimes we need that. That counterbalance in life from five-star luxury hotels and flying business class to staying in a bamboo hut, no bathroom. Oh, man. Uh, I can tell you I just had one this week as well. I thought it was going to be a five-star experience. I went – I flew to BVI, stay at my buddy's catamaran, and it was – I felt like I was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, like – no air conditioning, mosquitoes like crazy. I'm sleeping every night in sweatpants, a sweater, and fully covered my face, just my eyes poking out. And I'm like, how could people do this? There's literally hundreds of boats and everyone's doing that. And if there's one thing that you know about me, I hate mosquitoes. Like I could spend the rest yeah. of my adult life trying to kill mosquitoes, rid them from the earth without you know, uh-huh. any problem. And that dude, is Sam's was... actual his, <laughs> his secret agenda. Yeah. <laughs> he's trying to, he's trying to be a billionaire so he can get rid of mosquitoes. It will be a, it, it will be a mission in life at some point. But dude, these things, I don't know if you know, mosquitoes can fly like hundreds and hundreds of yards. So our sailboat was 500 yards off the coast parked with the ocean breeze and we're getting swarmed. I, it was unbelievable. I didn't even know it was possible. So, I, I, I wouldn't have thought so either. 
Yeah, it kind of changed my opinion. I'm checked checked the box off becoming a sailor. That's gone. So now I'm um I'm gonna find a dry place with no mosquitoes. I think you know. It's like Rick Ross think, says. He's like, I'm gonna find a nice yeah. place with no mosquitoes. I think when people follow us on social media, they they see that you are sailing around the Caribbean on your buddy's private catamaran, which is basically a yacht. And here you are keeping the real deal saying this isn't for everybody. Yeah, you know what I was doing the whole time? I was tethering my, my T-Mobile 3G from the US and I was looking at my Vanguard account wondering why my entire account is negative on the year when all the markets are at all-time highs. <laughs> it's pretty depressing. But uh, No, but what's happening is like all these material stocks are, get, are going up. You got all these bonds that are getting hammered. REITs are getting hammered. I'm just looking. At pretty. I'll share my, my Vanguard portfolio and in the show notes and in the boss lounge but oh i'm getting hammered it's it's unbelievable well i hate to tell you this and rub it in but all mine are up what what your wealth front and your uh vti i think i, I looked into into wealth front but vti is definitely up right now let me oh, just dude. log in real quick and, and take so a look good. yeah so Such... it's good to see to see two uh yeah it, it's way up right now <laughs> it's currently <laughs> vti is at 113 and i got in i don't know I mean, I would say on average probably 108, but some of it was lower. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to in about six weeks doing a year-end summary of all of our different investments, how they worked out. And I've had a, I've had a few that worked out this year, and I've had a lot that haven't. So, uh, a very interesting first year in the in the the massive investment quest driven through this podcast. You know, maybe next year what we should we should have a little challenge between you and I and just see maybe maybe not dollar amount, but like percentage growth or or loss for two thousand seventeen and, and see where, where we end up at. I like it. Yeah. All right. It sounds good guys. <laughs> if you guys haven't joined the Boss Lounge yet, uh, it's our private Facebook group for listeners only where people share tons of great information like Chris uh, shared his article uh, before uh, Trump actually was elected, so you could have got that info before the actual election, uh, mm-hmm. as well as what people are doing in the current investments day to day. Go ahead and go to investlikeaboss.com, click on bonus, and you'll have instructions on how to join both our private newsletter as well as the boss lounge and thanks to all my broskies out there and broettes for all the reviews i think we had 10 reviews last week that was awesome uh coming in from all around the world australia u.s brazil uh iceland so keep it up appreciate those we got some awesome guests lined up for december man years going by fast but um yeah keep that up guys appreciate it definitely amazing so thank you guys so much Go ahead and go on iTunes from whatever country you are from. Leave a review. This is the, the best way for us to continue getting top-notch guests onto the show to spread the knowledge with you guys. See you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.